Engaged pedagogy does not seek simply to empower students. Any classroom that employs a holistic model of learning will also be a place where teachers grow and are empowered by the process. That empowerment cannot happen if we refuse to be vulnerable while encouraging students to take risk. Bell Hooks in her chapter, Engaged Pedagogy, from her book, Teaching to Transgress. Welcome to season four of Safe Topics. In this series, we're talking about books. And other things. Yes, other things, but we're going to go deep on some books. Not like a full book review, but like a chapter by chapter review, which I guess adds up to a full book eventually. (laughs) Yes. And we're going to talk about anything else that makes us think about how we teach and why we teach. And we want you, the audience, to join us. Listen for details about how to do that at the end of this episode. All right, here we go. Whew. That's, yeah. So oh. I, have, I have in my my uh, book written down, so I underlined that line um, that ends, you know, that, that empowerment cannot happen if we refuse to be vulnerable while encouraging students to take risks. I have written down next to that, mind, heart, soul, body, and vulnerability is one part or all of those things as we live out our knowledge. Meaning I can be vulnerable from the heart. I can be vulnerable from the mind. I can be vulnerable from the body and or the soul. But within the context of this chapter, that vulnerability has to do with the knowledge I live. That's how I'm thinking about when that, that sort of concept of vulnerability. Because I think for me, let me just, I'll just continue for just a second. I'm not necessarily an outgoing person. I, I don't reveal a lot. It's not, I'm not inclined to do that. And so when I hear like, you know, humanize your classroom and like share your story, I'm like, no, please. Ah. (laughs) But, but as I read bell hooks here in the context of her chapter, I am thinking, but I am vulnerable in other ways. I'm intellectually vulnerable. I'm, I'm et cetera, et cetera. So how are you responding to that? What do you think? I I, I mean, I'm just laughing over here because I do know you and, and, and that's certainly true, but then you know that I'm the opposite. Yes. <laughs> that I will go out. We will go out for beers. You, you, you and um, I will go out and I, I'm making new best friends right there or they, they're, yeah. Yes. All the time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or, or, or like, you know, we go to the movies and I, I help out some, some, some guy that has trouble walking. Like we've been through some things that I'm like, I could just tell you're like, this guy just goes right in and is like, <laughs> now this person is part of, our lives, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But that, yeah. that's a great example there of vulnerability of like body, mind, heart, and soul. Like you walking up to somebody and physically like helping them or hugging them that you don't know. And like, there's a huge risk you're taking there, but you're so confident and comfortable doing that. Yeah, just just because the audience is probably like, what the hell? So we we um, <laughs> we went to, we, Curry and I regularly go to the movie theater. It's yeah. kind of a cool thing. And and we, we do break down the movies in a podcast that is not recorded. <laughs> so, um, and then one time we went and uh, as we were, we were leaving, I, I noticed this gentleman was having a tough time walking and it turns out he just had some medical operations some surgery on his knees and he's just having a really tough time, you know, and we basically carried him to his car. Actually, I drove his car over to, to go pick him up yep. anyway. So yeah, just this kind of, idea. yeah, super vulnerable. And, and, and look at the, I was vulnerable first, right? By like, hey, put your arm around me, buddy. Let's go. Let, you know, we'll help you out. 
we'll walk you over here. And then it was reciprocated. There was because what did he do? Here's my car keys. Go with my wife to yeah. get my car and drive you and my wife back and pick me up. Right. You can't get more vulnerable than that. Like no that's a lot of trust in a stranger here, right? That's right. And um, let me just so and what I just you always inspire me, Sean, in so many ways. But what's so inspirational about that moment and that I've thought about a lot since my heart, I'm inclined to help people. I want to help people. It's it. And so had, had I been aware of that, I would have been like up there too, but, of course. but I have a tendency to compartmentalize myself based on the situation and based on the circumstance and whatever I'm at. So I'm at the theater, hang out with Sean. I'm an audience member. I'm with my buddy. I am not aware of, I'm not thinking about myself as someone who could help someone who, but if you were alone, no question. If you were alone, you would have just jumped on is what you're saying. Well, yeah, but what I'm saying is you, the way you see the world and live in the world with that whole vulnerability that you're very confident in, because you do it all the time. You fucking go up to people like, like nothing. And just like, you're already best friends. I don't do that. But because I don't do that, I miss out on the knowledge of and the relationship with this person and how we could help each other. Does that make sense? And that that makes me think about how I teach and how I've grown as a teacher. Yeah. The more I am, the more, the less I compartmentalize my whole self. So in this class, I'm just a mind. And the more I am more my whole self, the more I have the more I'm afforded to know my students and for them to know me and for us to get to those places where we can help each other. It, I, what, I, what I've talked a lot, uh, I've talked about this before on the podcast is when I was going through school, when I was going through university, even community college, but graduate school too, I was taking notes, not on the content, but on the professors. Yeah. And so I kind of always look at myself in the classroom in that same way what if someone was taking notes on me and and so when i think about that i want to be modeling this is the idea of modeling at all times right if someone is speaking in the classroom i'm so zeroed in on them like there's nothing like it's a tunnel like i'm just looking right at them because i don't want to seem distracted because i want because usually what the students are doing they'll look to me and if they see I'm so zeroed in on what that person's saying, guess what they're going to listen to? Right. And in making yourself vulnerable and doing what others, what you're asking your students to do, and she talks about this, doing it first yes. is so important. And this is kind of like first day, first week kind of stuff too. Because right. if you're asking them to share something, you know, you're trying to break that ice, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You got to jump in first. That's right. Nobody's yeah. going into the pool unless you show them that you're willing to do the same. Yep. Hook says, I would never ask my students to do something that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. Right. And whenever I have a new assignment, a new project, something new I'm trying out, yep. I do it first. And I learned this from one of my mentors and she, you know, I was talking about designing assignments early in my career and then. She was like, oh, yeah, I know he's providing an example, an example, like a student example or whatever of, of the assignment so that students can use it as a reference. I'm like, well, what if this is the first time I'm doing this assignment? You know, I just made it up. Yeah. She was like, well, then just use use the one that you did. Right. And then I was like, wait, you do the assignments? She's like, of course. How could I ask them to do the assignments if I don't do them? And I was like, whoa, <laughs> uh oh, 
totally got to change everything now. <laughs> I never thought about doing these assignments. I just thought it was really cool to make them up and then subject other people to them. Yes. Yes. You know, because it was like, oh, I'm not going to do it. Right. Now I'm like, oh, yeah, I do it first. Yeah. And I find a lot about the assignment that changes, by the way, when I when I actually do that. So I think that's that's another way of thinking about this concept of vulnerability in two ways. One, when you do when you do the assignment first, you are willing to sort of really test and and sort of right and and maybe in them and you're going to learn all kinds of stuff. So you're not just assuming this is good. It's going to be right. You're let's let's test it. Let's be vulnerable. The other thing is you said kind of when a student's speaking, I'm just, there's nothing else in the world. I'm just zeroed in. Yep. When I hear that, what I hear is you are making vulnerable your plan for that class period. Because if you've abandoned everything else just to listen to a student, you're not in that moment worried about, oh shit, but we've got to get to the quiz prep in 15 minutes or like, you know, like you're willing to, okay, this could take us somewhere generative and this student is actively engaged this is what it's all about, right? Um, and let's let's follow it in your teacherly way, in your teacherly way, as you nudge. Yeah, 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 yeah. And all, all that you do. Right. Um, but that's, again, like for me, being vulnerable in the classroom has always felt like something that's just not me. It's not my personality. But, but thinking of vulnerability in this larger, expansive way, not just of the heart, but of all of me as a teacher, it, it helps me. It helps me a lot. So as a teacher, that's a label, right? Yeah. And, but then, okay, just like a captain is a label. Yeah. Let's say there's a captain of a ship, right? Yeah. The captain is usually not the one. I don't know the names of the people on the ship or, or even, you know, the ship structure. So excuse me for all my, all my ship and no, boat no, folks no, out no. there. Yeah. I, yeah. That, that, that I'm not part of that crowd. Um, but I, I think of like navigation, right? And you have somebody who's looking out, who's got the compass, got the, got the binoculars and they're looking out. And they're telling the captain what they see. That's what the student's doing in that moment. Yeah. And I am listening because I'm I'm formulating the plan based on this new intel. It's guidance for me. Right, right. They're going to show me what's out there so that I know how to navigate the water from there. That's right. Cool. And, and maybe it's like, whoa, no, no, no. That's kind of a spot I didn't intend. But like, let's make sure we pay attention to it. But we're going to steer over here. So that we can, you know, properly apply something or whatever, not steer them away from the ideas, but steer, uh, steer them in the way of like, how does the content relate to what they're talking about? Is it accurate, precise, blah, blah, blah. So I, I think about it kind of that way. Like, I really have to pay attention because much like a captain, I have this label that tends to lend itself to leadership in that space. And now to properly do that, I need as much information from the people who are actually seeing what's happening around us instead of me for my position i could be blinded by so much totally yep okay so what the fuck does self-actualization mean i don't know so <laughs> i don't i really like i say it sometimes but it's one of those things i say so i can sound smart i know but i'm like i don't really know what it i i, I mean i could tell you that I think you should do it. <laughs> I mean, the cool. I, I could tell you I wish I was. Well, <laughs> it's kind of like enlightenment, right? That's another one. Actually, I'm like, yeah. So actually, I think that <laughs> hooks in talking about self actualization is critiquing enlightenment. Actually, 
So, uh, so six, page 16, uh, middle chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes back to what you just said, pretty much. So indeed, the objectification of the teacher within Burgoy's uh, 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 educational structures, St. Burgoy, Burgoy's, uh, sorry, bourgeois, bourgeois, bourgeois. <laughs> educational structures seem to uh, denigrate notions of wholeness and uphold the idea of a mind-body split, mm-hmm. one that promotes and supports compartmentalization. So in other words, this enlightenment thinking of the rational mind is the more sort of profound and kind of, you know, um, valued part of my being, of my how I think and, and are and all that stuff. At the expense of my irrational being, the sort of emotion that I have little control over that doesn't seem to contribute cognitively to discourse or innovations or engineering or whatever it might be. That is that enlightenment assumption, I feel like she's really tearing at. She's really, really breaking that apart. And and to self-actualize, she's she's saying we we bring these things back together, right? It's my emotional being, my cognitive being, my physical being, my my agency, my soul being. That that to bring those together is to self-actualize. Right. I think there's been a shift since the writing of this um, this text because, okay, this is what I always think about too, is like, remember when, uh, not remember when we weren't around. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say like, remember when, uh, (laughs) remember when the nobility were overweight and that was a sign of wealth and prosperity and (laughs) we we don't remember when. we learned about right. so and and people that were very thin were kind of like oh th- these are poor people right. right and now like we have this weird like opposite or where, where you know nutrition so bad for those that live in poverty a lot of the time with like food deserts and just lack of education lack of resources expensive good food all of those kind of things um are harmful and and could cause obesity right so, so sometimes now we look at uh, being overweight as like a sign of being of a lower social class rather than a higher. Right. And if you're really fit or thin or in shape, in shape is different than being thin. So I don't know, but there, there's kind of like a, you're of a higher class. Right. And yeah. I see that here because I look at bourgeois, uh, the bourgeoisie and, and bourgeois educational structures. So when we think about that, it's like, that is, you know, the ivory tower, the, like, you know, the, the sage from the stage. Right. And at the same time, I I would argue today, the the mind body yoga retreat meditation that is actually exclusive now to the higher class, and they are have more um, access to it. When that used to be shit that like poor people would have to live off of that would nurture them in the way that other material resources couldn't because. They could take a lot away from you and they could deny you a lot of shit. But if you have your spirit intact, you can meditate, you could do yoga, you could you could find yourself and, and your connection to your soul and your spirit that way. And it don't cost a damn thing. Yeah, no. Yeah, no doubt. And Hooks is talking about this from a pedagogical perspective, right? So that a teaching. I know class. I took us somewhere else. Sorry, but yeah. no, 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 no. I want to go there, too, because I think another way that this critique is continuing to advance is within our disciplines. Like, in other words, like, uh, 
this notion of decolonizing our our canons, right? Decolonizing our epistemologies um, to, right. to to only embrace rational Eurocentric Enlightenment thinking at the exclusion of other cultural epistemologies, right? Other conocimientos, uh, right? Other ways of knowing oh, and yeah. expressing. Yeah. Um, that that's part of this too, right? And th this is helpful to think about this, that on the one hand, to embrace self-actualization, we need to be mindful that it, it does have sort of hierarchical implications. Um, but also, you know, this is this is a pedagogy we can embrace as teachers, but a practice we need to embrace as discipline experts too, this challenge to enlightenment thinking. That's right. Back to the book, learning about the work of intellectuals and academics, primarily from 19th century fiction and nonfiction during my pre-college years, I was certain that the task for those of us who chose this vocation was to be holistically questing for self-actualization. Mm -hmm. It was the actual experience of college that disrupted this image. It was there that I was made to feel as though I was terribly naive about the profession. I learned that far from being self-actualized, the university was seen more as a haven for those who are smart in book knowledge, but who might otherwise be unfit for social interaction. Luckily, during my undergraduate years, I began to make a distinction between the practice of being an intellectual teacher and one's role as a member of the academic profession. Oh, my goodness. I feel that in every way. I feel that. Yeah, go the profession. Yeah. Separating yourself. I am two different people in my career, Curry Mitchell. Yes. I am a... I am three different people. Actually, I'm a teacher, I'm a sociologist, and then I'm a faculty member. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and a faculty member is a quasi-administrative person. Yeah. The teacher is like, that's the only thing where I feel like the soul is really, I know we need to have another conversation after this podcast because of what I'm saying right now at this moment. But the, the, that's where, like, I feel my soul. And then, and then as a sociologist, I'm kind of like, what the hell's going on in the world? Yeah. So where are you at with this? I, this passage right here just hit me hard. Oh, yeah. Well, no. I, and so I, okay, I want to just link to another passage and come straight back to it. So yes. the two pages later, I'm on 18 bottom, says, uh, the vision of liberatory education that connects the will to know with the will to become. So it's a mm. fragment of that. Mm. But I love that phrase. Liberatory education connects the will to know with the will to become. And when I respond to the passage that you just read, I'm hearing community. I'm hearing a bunch of academic sociologists or just teachers or faculty, whatever you're embodying in the moment, but in community where that sheer will to know all the labor we've put in as either discipline experts or experts in our classroom as practitioners, whatever it is, we have now become those things and we are those things together, right? That we embody that knowledge and we embody it together. And to me, that's sometimes what I feel is what's most lacking 
in, in, in when I when I walk around campus or when I go join a committee meeting or even when I'm in my own classroom for my own faults, my own sort of flaws, it's that that authentic community, right? Where we we embody this knowledge together and and around it and in it and through it, we have relationships that grow it right? In, in different ways. And even the, what I love about this is the verbs are failing me again. It's like, it's just that ontology. It's just that being. Um, uh, 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 and I, for me, it's, I'm so challenged to just sit with that and think about, well, what, when do I do that? And when do we do that together? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the, the whole, the idea where she, she's talking about a, a safe haven for those who are smart yes. um, or just a haven for those who are smart in book knowledge, but otherwise be unfit for social interaction. That to me is just, <laughs> I go back to grad school and I'm thinking like, yes. I was like so impressed with like these conversations and discussions and lectures. And then I went to go talk to the instructor and I was like, wow, this is, this is kind of awkward, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and um, yeah. A lot of people in my discipline are actually really antisocial, you know, and, and it's weird because it's like they they want to learn about people. But they, the, the whole like interacting with people and being around a lot of people, I, I find that a, disproportionately people in my discipline don't want to do that, you know, right. Right. or that's not their strength. Sure. But I mean, just to put it on the table, I'm super fucking awkward. Like. I actually, this is why I think I'm a good asynchronous teacher and a pretty shitty synchronous teacher because I have good plans and good activities and yeah. I'm the one that fucks them up. <laughs> but, but I also get to a place where my students, where they just know that they're like, he's going to just ramble for a few minutes and we got to just abide that. And then yeah, yeah. it's good stuff together and he'll come. You know what I mean? So I hear you, the, the social, I, I just want to create space for being social awkward. And also practicing what books is calling us to practice. That's all. <laughs> yeah, no, completely. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to kind of switch up the vibe here, okay? Go ahead. Back to the book. There are times when I walk into classrooms overflowing with students who feel terribly wounded yeah. in their psyches. Yeah. Many of them see therapists. Yet I do not think that they want therapy from me. They do want an education that is healing to the uninformed, unknowing spirit. They do want knowledge that is meaningful. They rightfully expect that my colleagues and I will not offer the uh, will not offer them information without addressing the connection between what they are learning and their overall life experiences. So we've talked a lot about this, right? And we're going back to this because it's important, the meaningful, the, the, the healing now is to the uninformed, unknowing spirit, which yeah. puts that it, when you heard the healing earlier, when you read that earlier in the chapter could kind of be like, well, I don't know. But when it's in this context, I feel like that's where it clicked to uninformed, unknowing spirit. So it's, yeah, is it a healing or an enrichment back to what you were talking about? Right. So I think it is more of that enrichment, that, that, that type of thing. Yeah. But that, yeah, go ahead. 
the line right above that paragraph is, and I was searching for this earlier, but that, that's mm -hmm. where she says it, right? It's, it's utterly unreasonable for students to expect classrooms to be therapy sessions. It is appropriate for them to hope that the knowledge received in these settings will enrich and enhance them. Yes, yes. And there's a lot to like practically say here, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we went through a global pandemic during our careers and uh, a lot of students that we currently have, you know, they've been impacted by that in a variety of ways, right? There's all across the board. And not only that, we, you know, the history of our country and the history of our society has, uh, we are barely getting to a place where mental health is prioritized appropriately. Let's just put it that way, right? Yeah. And it is, it's very much emphasized now in what we do. So, you know, I do see a lot of pain in my students' writing, yeah. in their conversations with me. Yeah. I see a lot of challenges that we face collectively just because of the accumulation of individual narratives that I've heard and, and experienced. And I think here, is like, we don't want to take on too much in our role. We don't want to oversell, overpromise on things we can't deliver. Right. But what we can deliver, if that is not going beyond a no harm approach to a do good approach, I think that's what we're trying to get to here. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. what the, that's how I'm reading this. Yeah. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. And it also makes me think of, or just makes me, reminds me to be mindful of the whole apparatus that the institution offers and surrounds the student with, right? Like in other That's words, right. our students have access to therapy. Mm -hmm. I can't supply it, but it's a resource. It's here. Mm -hmm. and they have access to food pantry and they have mm -hmm. access to transportation, you know, vouchers and or assistance. Um, our administrators are actively getting funding for us to support and sort of, you know, grow those programs. And so when I think about it like that through Bell Hooks's lens, I think about what we are doing, all of us at, at, at a community college is supporting learning and we're doing it in different spaces and in different ways, but we're thinking of our students as whole beings, right? Mind, body, Absolutely. soul, spirit, right? Um, 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 or heart, whatever. Um, and that helps me because sometimes I feel like the conversation, the way we see each other, staff, faculty, administrators, that that can be different in different spaces, competitive or whatever. But through that lens, it's no, all of us are supporting the student and their agency as learners, and we're doing it in different ways that I can get behind that every single moment of the day. Right. Yeah, no. That's right. And, and, and in the, you know, we're in chapter one. Can you believe that? We've created hours of content from the introduction in chapter one. So great. Thank you, Bell Hooks. What a gift. So, you know, she was into talking about when she was teaching at Yale, yeah. Gary, a student. I want to talk about Gary too. Let's talk about Gary. So Gary was writing, you know, in, in the writing for her class about the joy in regard to experiencing engaged pedagogy and navigating the cognitive dissonance that he was experiencing with joining a fraternity, yep. rubbing right against his desire to develop his skills as a writer. Yep. And um, 
a quote here. Gloria, that's Bell Hook's given name. Gloria had only mentioned the entire episode once um, after it was over. And this to tell me simply that there are many kinds of choices, many kinds of logic. I could make those events mean whatever I wanted as long as I was honest. And this goes back to what we talked about before, Curry, with the introduction. You know, you asked me some questions and it was kind of, and, and with, I think with our AI artificial intelligence episode two, it was this idea of like, what are you looking for? Yeah. And this is what I'm looking for. Honesty. Yeah. There's many different choices. There's many ways to express yourself. I want it to be honest. Yeah. And, and I love the, this, this to, so this to tell me simply that there are many kinds of choices, many mm-hmm. kinds of logic. I could make mm-hmm. those events mean whatever I wanted to, as long as I was honest. So it's not my way or the highway. It's not, you didn't structure the paragraph correctly. It's there are infinitely many ways to structure that paragraph. As long as you and I together are honest about what you're trying to communicate and how I'm receiving it. And we'll go back and forth all day and work that until it is effective expression of what you're constructing. Right. It's, it's a microcosm of what a cohesive society is. Right. It's, it's a negotiation. It's that dialectic. And that that's why we need some STEM folks on here, because I want to ask that question of. So how like how does that phrase ring true for for math professors? There are many kinds of logic as long as I am honest. Right. Um, and again, I'm not I'm going to ask you or me to go to that place to like fill in the blank there. But I am I am deeply, deeply fascinated and curious. Um, so we need to follow up on that. Let's go in a direction because really the the a purpose a purpose of this book is is a march towards social justice, right? Yes, yes. And and so I want to go there in thinking about this particular line: many kinds of choices, many kinds of logics. You can make those whatever you want as long as you're honest. It post structural, post modern kind of ways of looking at things. Yeah. That, that there are valid truths and, and everybody's truth is so, you know, I, I, I am a critic of those perspectives. Sure. I, I got to be honest. Yeah. But at the same time, I have to be honest, right? So the, at the same time, I want to recognize that the, there are structures in place and, and you could think of the academy as one of these structures. Deconstruction decolonization to me often feels like the radical approach that it is, but also to dismantle in order to build something better. Now, the issue that I come kind of have, the issue that I have with that approach a lot of the time is you don't know if the thing that you're going to build is actually going to be better, but there's a potential that it's much worse. Yeah. And so to me, when we have these structures and they have been there for a long time for good and bad, I like the idea of refining. I like the idea of shaping it into what we need now, as opposed to what was needed when it was shaped initially. But a total deconstruction, I feel like, is a project that people are not prepared for. Does, yeah. does that make sense? Well, totally. And also, have we asked 
especially our students, if their goals align with that total deconstruction. And I think about, so I think about like you, your critique of postmodernism, poststructuralism. Uh, I think of the critique of constructivist thinking about teaching, right? So yeah. in other words, we, we, no one receives knowledge, we build it ourselves. And so that's right. my approach to teaching is very inductive and it's very sort of, we begin with your language and we move towards, and I said this earlier, like we don't even say thesis statements sometimes. Okay, mm -hmm. am I thinking about the student whose goal it is, is to simply pass my class so they can transfer to a place where actually that language is really important? And mm -hmm. am I imposing my own sort of ambition and, and sort of in punk rock joy about burning everything down over them? And so I'm not empowering them. I'm not positioning them as agents that I'm not allowing for that teaching as a practice of freedom, even though what I want to do is sort of right? What I think is freedom, right? So I'm imposing. Does that make sense? It, it totally makes sense. And, and it, it goes to this very thing in the book right here. Back to the book. In her essay on race and voice challenges for liberation education in the 1990s, Chandra Moanti? I think so. Uh, Yep. writes that resistance lies in the self-conscious engagement with dominant, with dominant normative discourses and representations and in the active creation of oppositional analytic and cultural spaces. Resistance that is random and isolated is clearly not as effective as that which is mobilized through systemic political Politi politicized practices of teaching and learning, uncovering and reclaiming subju subjugated knowledge is one way to lay claims to alternative histories, but these knowledges need to be understood and defined pedagogically mm -hmm. as questions of strategy and practice, as well as scholarship mm -hmm. in order to transform educational institutions radically. Exactly what you said. So that is what you're trying to practice is that resistance isn't just random. I'm not just doing that. Right. Yeah. And, and we all need to be on board. So there's yeah. the, we're, we're, uh, you know, as, uh, uh, you know, we're collaborating together, we're coming together. We're, 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 we're sort of codifying this, not, not in for the sake of it's traditional. So we're going to do it that way, but as a group, this is how we express it. And as a group, this is how we'll deliver it. Right. And that's, that's where it has effect. Right. Right. And so, you know, throughout all of this, it's emphasizing engaged pedagogy and emphasizing creating the classroom culture together, emphasizing all of those different things that the resistance to I guess whatever is not engaged pedagogy here, right? Then that is done as a collective as well. And it's not individual because we know that that is not going to be, as she says, effective, right? And it feels like, you know, you know, the people that like, they're kind of, they're, they're doing their resistance, but it is isolated. It's, they don't like things and they don't like the way that things are but they're not really like getting people together to do something about it. Right. They're just kind of complaining. Yeah. 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 And, and to me, it's like, reminds me of those people. And, and 
is it is it an ageist term to say curmudgeon? <laughs> oh, I'm not sure. I don't know, but but that kind of that word comes to mind for me, I guess, when I think about that. It's like someone that's just like they're kind of like not down with what's going on, but at the same time, you know, it's like, well, why don't you do something about it? And they're like, ah, no, I don't want this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, There's totally. nothing to be done. Nothing's going to change. Right. But I also think about the student who is, is at, you know, doing some pretty radical, amazing shit in her essay. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm not doing very a very good job in the class of allowing those ideas to be not just heard by other students, but grappled with by other students to the point where they can agree or even sort of challenge, but in a way that we're all, this is who we are. Like that's a voice in this classroom that's shaping the direction we're going in. And I am going to engage with that voice. You know what I mean? Like that, because I feel like I do the same thing. I make that amazing critique random and isolated if I'm not allowing students to do these things in public spaces and shared spaces and inviting them to kind of work on that together, right? Oh, gosh, it's so powerful. I mean, just that part where resistance lies in self-conscious engagement with dominant normative discourses and representations and in the active creation of oppositional analytic and cultural spaces and culture. Yeah, that to me is almost everything because you think about look, we have to engage in the world. Look, Whatever topic it is, I could come to you and say, did you see this thing on the news? How shitty is that? Yeah. yeah. But for you to give the space, to provide the space to say, is it shitty? Yeah. Can we really look at it? Because yeah. there are taboo things in this society and in discourse that we are just like, toe the line, you know the script, stick to the stick to what we all know is the right thing to do in this situation. And to me, that is not liberatory to me. That is keeping my mind captive. But then if I were to do it, I can I have to pick the right audience. I have to pick the right time. I have to pick the right tone and I have to do it in a way that doesn't show that I am actually in favor of things that no one in the group is in favor of, but I just am willing to investigate. And will you come along with me? Yeah. Well, and I want to parse that line you just read just a little bit more too. Like at the end of it, oppositional analytic and cultural spaces. And I read that as the the academic sort of let's logically sort of deconstruct what you just said and we'll weigh it and we'll challenge, find its merits. But the cultural spaces, that's the Maybe it sounds like we went off topic and maybe it sounds like laughter or maybe it sounds like deep, deep frustration that then moves towards like, okay, I'll, whatever, like, okay, I hear you. I hear you. We need... Maybe it's just energy, but that's so important that that's the culture of our class. And if I'm always like, no, we can't go off topic. If I don't allow space for the, I'm a human and I need to process this in my guts first, you know what I mean? And together. Both, I'm so happy that that Mahanti includes those things together, that there's an and there and she makes space for analytic and cultural spaces because that those need to happen. Both those need to happen and that she ends that paragraph with scholarship. It's not a rejection of 
academic forms or codes or those things. It's a and, right? It's an and we move, we dismantle and we construct. We speak the language and we challenge the language. I love that and. And do you read it the same way? Am I am I conflating things? No, but I, okay. So oppositional analytic spaces, cultural spaces. What 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 is the distinction between those two things to you? Like that, you you got to explain to me what those are. Yeah. So I'm thinking of an actual like practical classroom situation where okay. like a student. So we've got a we got students writing on the board. And there's some ideas being expressed there. And we're going to analyze that paragraph for like, how well are these ideas expressed? How are they supported? Are they logically cohesive? Right. That's that analytical space. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and so in, in she, she has the adjective oppositional. So like, we're, we're going to be doing some pressing upon that. Like, like, what are the ideas behind this? What are the assumptions behind this? Like, we're going to really analyze. Critical, the critical pedagogy there. Yeah. Right. Okay. But I also have a classroom cultural space where that same kind of idea can be expressed and we're not going to tear it apart. We're just going to receive it as we together sort of have formed a community, meaning it might make us laugh. We might just receive it and bounce it around. I might receive this paragraph and think of a story and tell a story, right? And or I'm going to take this thing that you've just said and I'm going to make it a part of my how I see myself as becoming part of all of you. Right. Um, does that make sense? Does that. I guess I need a specific example. <laughs> okay. Let me try to think of one. Um... <laughs> because the way that I, yeah, the cultural spaces. Okay. The active creation of cultural spaces. Let's think about that. Yeah. Cause that's a tricky one to me. Yes. yes. Right. Because right. you don't want to be inauthentic. You definitely don't want to be offensive. You don't want to be appropriating, right? Yes. There's there's all of that. I mean, I I just think that allowing for that space, inviting it, you know, and 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 see, even allowing, right? Like I, I I'm it's tough to even speak or write, as you know, when you when you read a text like this or you get into this this space because you start to question all the shit you're saying and all the shit you're doing because you're like, wait, hold on. Why is my language this way? Right. And, and often it's like, maybe I am doing unintentional harm because I am just simply not paying attention enough. Right. I'm not doing that oppositional analytic work. Yeah. Okay, let me let me let me try to give give an example, and 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 I'm I'm glad you're pressing me on this because I'm yeah. you're helping me to really grapple. So, I we just taught um, uh, an essay project that was essentially a rhetorical analysis essay, and so we're looking at texts and we're analyzing them for how they're composed, um, um, uh, uh, like visually, lyrically, all the things. Sure. And so we're watching this Toyota ad from uh, like a couple of years ago um, where there are these uh, Olympic athletes like, you know, with, you know, like some have prosthetic <laughs> legs and some have, you know, yeah. whatever. And they're all in these like champion positions. It's very, very inspirational, like the music and all the stuff. Well, at one point, I just get students into spaces and I'm like, just talk about this thing. Just kind of feel this thing first before we really dig into its rhetorical features. And one of my students just starts telling her story as a person uh, who lives with disability. And she talks about how there are certain spaces she goes to where it feels very lonely. And she 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 was using the language of like, it's not accessible, like, like you know, getting on the bus or sure. whatever. Um, 
she, she was using that, but her emphasis was on when I go to the spaces, I feel really lonely. And then after she said that, she said, and so when I watch this ad and I see these individuals who are in these moments of like, like achievement, sure. I'm always seeing them by themselves, right? They're always by themselves as they're depicted. And I know what this ad is trying to do. It's trying to sort of make them these individuals of accomplishment, but I'm just feeling them as isolated and lonely because, right? And we had to hear that story and gather around her and agree with her to to listen and to sort of feel and empathize with her mm -hmm. before we then could go back into an analytic space to challenge that ad and kind of start to reap. She helped us see some assumptions that we never would have seen if we didn't have that shared just moment. And that that to me is what I would call a cultural space, uh, you know, where where we can be our whole selves and share that with each other. That's powerful. The So the thing that I think about with those moments, because, you know, as we talk about a lot, we could really fuck it up, <laughs> you know? The thing about that moment, though, and it's tough. This is where we need to check ourselves. Yeah. I think this is part of going down the road of being self-actualized, too, is that we don't take that moment and personalize it. Mm -hmm. We don't take that moment and ask our students to personalize it. Mm -hmm. We don't ask them to engage in the intellectual exercise of positionality of saying, I can relate because I feel lonely when. Right. It sounds good because I feel like initially everybody just wants an in on learning. Right. So the in on learning, let's say it's DEI, right? It's diversity, equity, inclusion stuff. White folks want an in. They're like, where can I feel like they feel even, even if it's to a way lesser degree? So that I can then relate and then it'll be easier to like click with all these other concepts and all these other experiences. Right. That makes sense. But I would argue, yeah. we take a pause, take a beat and let it live as their own. Yeah. Let it live as something that you don't understand and fuck it. You don't have to. Right. Just listen yeah. and feel what they're telling you and really be about that before you get into the work of, now, how can I relate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because right now it's not about you. It's not about you. That's right. That's right. Yep. 100%. But we do that. We have to fight against that instinct. It you talk to people about anything and you're like, well, where am I in that? Like, you know, like I need something to either contribute, relate to, or blah, 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 blah. No. Yeah. I think as teachers, it's our responsibility to say, this is not about me. I will model vulnerability first. I could show us, you know, pass for relating to that later. But in this moment, you know, what I like to do is I stop and I say, can we all just take a moment and reflect and acknowledge what was just said? Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. And then just pause it. Yeah. And then go, okay, now let's relate it to whatever. Let's do the work, the analytic work. Yeah. But I think that's also modeling a respect for storytelling, which is the most intimate, beautiful, attractive thing we do as human beings. And it's the thing we love the most. We love, love, love stories. Yeah. Uh, you get Chapter two. 
<laughs> what was that? What was that? I said, you give me a lot of stuff to think about all the time. <laughs> oh my goodness. Same, same. It's reciprocal. The, but uh, we're all, we're only gonna, we're going to be on chapter two after this. That's yeah. yep. Yep. All right. All right. Dude. If you heard anything in this episode that has you thinking about how you teach, why you teach, or if anything made you feel joyful or even mad, like you just yelled at your dishes or whooped while you were walking your neighborhood, I've done those things. <laughs> then we really want to hear from you. You can find us on the Twitter at Safe Topics. Let us know how you're responding to today's book stuff. Like, what did we miss? Or what did we totally get right? Or what questions did we raise for you? And best of all, how are you thinking about your teaching and students? We'll update what we're reading so you can read along if you want. And your feedback will shape our discussions as we go. We may even read some comments in the episodes to come. And not just the nice ones. Safe Topics is a safe setting for dangerous topics. That's right. If you like this episode, please rate and subscribe. We've never really asked people to do that before. I know. I think it's cool, though. We're ready to be rated and subscribed Yeah, and big thanks to Kelly Burnett and the rest of the Safe Topics team for editing, producing, promoting, and all the other wonderful backstage stuff you do. <laughs> and thank you for listening.